You know, teaching in this last year has been quite an extraordinary experience. And I've thought many times it's not teaching that I ever wanted to have to do. I was as shocked as anyone by the events of September a year ago, and um, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. In fact, maybe worse. And um, over and over again, as I sit with people and talk with people and we share our feelings and concerns at this world that is so much in disarray, And there's that sense that many people have of betrayal and grief and fear. And it's very hard to know what to say in response to that, partly because I'm right in there with you. You know, I'm just as betrayed and just as afraid sometimes and just as confused and sometimes just as angry. And I have some sense of that place where everyone really would like to have a life that doesn't have any risk in it. You know, there's no threat of sniping or bombing or imminent war or any of that. Um, And yet, as I over and over here, some of our leaders talk about wanting a world in which there is no risk. I think maybe they should do a basic Vipassana course and learn a little bit about dukkha. Because every good Buddhist knows that there isn't such a thing as a life without risk, that um, we always are at risk and there's always some place of difficulty and suffering and unsatisfactoriness that is present in our existence. This weekend in Santa Cruz, a 37-year-old surfer was out enjoying the waves and had a heart attack and died. And nobody ever thinks of that kind of thing as about to happen in their lives. And he probably didn't particularly think he was at risk. And yet he was, and now he's gone. And so the question comes for all of us, how do we cope with all of this? How do we cope with the world situation? How do we cope with a human life in which it sometimes seems like there isn't any place of safety? And where do we find a place in which we can rest the mind and the heart? So as I've pondered it, One of the places that I came back to was a place that I always think of as being at the beginning. And being at the beginning, you know, Suzuki Roshi said that wonderful thing about in the beginner's mind there are many options and in the expert's mind there are few. And being coming back to the beginning is really a wonderful place to go for all of us. I was at the beach today with a puppy who was at the beach for the first time in her four-month-old life. And she was in this state of constant amazement at 
all of the different things, a piece of seaweed and a bubble and, you know, water. She hadn't encountered one running water. She wasn't entirely sure about that. And I was so just enjoying this mind that was so open and so fresh and so um, receptive to everything that arose. So at the beginning, for us, for many of us anyway, one of the first teachings that we hear are the teachings about the three refuges, about refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And in some traditions, one takes refuge as a formal practice at the beginning of a Buddhist um, career. And maybe some of you did that, particularly if you started practice in the Tibetan world. And we certainly use it at the beginning of retreats as a way of focusing ourselves and our attention and moving into the silence and the safety of the retreat. And some of you probably say the refuges or maybe chant the refuges every day as part of your practice. And there's a way in which when it becomes a regular part of our lives, we don't listen so much. We don't give it quite so much attention. But as I thought about it, I thought, well, maybe maybe there were some things to look at again that we could consider as we consider the refuges. And so, of course, the first refuge is refuge in the Buddha. One of the things that is, to me, most powerful about the Buddha is that the Buddha was a perfectly ordinary human being. He wasn't a god. He wasn't some being walking around in a people suit um, in order to convey a particular message or do a particular piece of work amongst some set of lower beings who are human beings. He was a human being perhaps a quite extraordinary human being, and there are extraordinary human beings. It's very good, I think, that there are some who um, walk around the planet. But he was a human being, and, and he teaches us that, in fact, the insights and the awakenings that came for him are possible for other human beings as well. And this is a place for me of great hope and great refuge, that there is something in these teachings that's workable, that's doable for all of us as people in these times. And as I pondered that, one of the things that I considered is that the Buddha was deeply connected to the natural world. You know that little phrase that gets said a lot, he was born under a tree and enlightened under a tree and he died under a tree. And I have the great blessing of living in the trees, so I have some sense of what that might be. And it even occurred to me the other day that the Buddha camped out all of his life, (laughs) which is kind of a nice thing to think about, actually, that he was on this sort of extended camping trip out there in the forests of India and occasionally stayed in maybe what we would think of as cabins Um, or cottages, but not much more elaborate than that once he left his um, home that he had been in as a young man. And so he was 
out there in the natural world. And he walked from place to place. And if any of you have done any of the pilgrimage sites in India, those weren't short walks. He didn't just get up and walk for five or six miles and then he was at the next place. Some of those places are quite some distance and would have taken days and days and days of walking. And so he walked and um, stayed in the forest and sat under trees and taught under trees and was very, very connected to the rhythms of, of the planet. And any of you who've been up at Abhayagiri, you know that even now the monks every week observe the lunar observance day. They watch where the moon is and whatever day of the week it's the, the new moon or the half moon or the full moon or the next half moon um, is the day that they celebrate with a Dharma talk and sitting up all night meditating and that kind of thing. Again, very in tune, very in tune with the rhythms of the stars and the planets. And it seemed, as I reflected on it, that um, this connectedness to the natural world, to our humanity and to the natural world, is a place of refuge for us. And it's a wonderful place of refuge at a time like this. So I came here today and a whole group of you were in yoga class, which is marvelous, getting into your bodies. Yoga is a really good way to do that. Or for some of it, for some of us, it is walking in the trees or by the ocean or on the ridges, wherever it is that you walk, or moving your body in one way or another, dancing or qigong or yoga, or digging in your garden, or simply sitting in the sunshine or looking at a tree or a plant and taking the time to do that. Today, as I was going over my notes for this talk, I was remembering, some of you probably knew Howard Noodleman, who founded this group in Palo Alto years and years ago. He was leading the group before Gil led the group. He wasn't a teacher. He was just a student who was interested to have a a sitting group. And Howard died of cancer in the early 90s. And one day when he was quite ill and he'd been going through um, some pretty heavy-duty chemotherapy, he was saying that he didn't have energy for very much but he would sit by his window and look out at the trees and just watch the trees blowing in the wind. And he said, you know, that's enough. That's enough. It was really wonderful for him to be alive and to be present with the movement of the trees in the wind. That kind of refuge, and that kind of refuge holds under the most difficult of circumstances. A very, very simple kind of solace at a time of a lot of stress. The Buddha, of course, also, um, the word bud means awake in Sanskrit. And you probably, most of you know that story where he describes his identity. He says, I am awake. That's who he is. I am awake or awakeness, not a deva or a god or this or that, but he is awake. And traditionally, when we talk about refuge in the Buddha, we also talk about refuge then in that inner Buddha nature that we all have, that place of awakeness, of seeing what is so in any particular moment, that place that is rooted in the present moment, sees 
just what is there. Now, it's interesting because that's not an obsession with the present moment. Some people have said, well, all they can do these days is about every half an hour they get on, on the Internet and they go to CNN or someplace and see what's happening right now, you know, that sort of obsession with the news. I don't think that's what the Buddha meant, but more that place of, of looking deeply what's true now, not out there in the future, not next week or tomorrow or even in the next 10 minutes, but what's right here, identified with awakeness. And then I, I came across a quote from Gandhi who said, be the change that you wish to see in the world. Be the change that you wish to see in the world. So I hear that as a suggestion that we be awake, that we be awakeness or we be spaciousness or we be compassion. That's a way to be in the world, to bring um, enlightenment and change to our world. You know, the Dalai Lama is um, considered in the Tibetan tradition to be the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. And one year when I was teaching with Gil at Vajrapani, we noticed that there was a letter that was framed and hanging on the wall of the office, that this little tiny office that we use as a staff room during Vajrapani. And it's a letter from Lama Zopa, who is the um, head lama of Vajrapani and all of its associated centers. And it's a letter to the Dalai Lama, a copy of a letter to the Dalai Lama. And he says, you know, I don't, I don't really know who you are. I don't really know if you're the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. But whatever it is that you are, it's good enough for me. <laughs> and, and my sense is, I don't know who it is that the Dalai Lama is or whether he's the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. But what I've seen in, in those occasions when I've been privileged to be even in the same room with him and 8,000 of his good friends, um, <laughs> as, as you watch him move around and be with people, and in a couple of occasions, smaller gatherings, it's very clear that he takes that very seriously and he practices as though he were the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. And each person that he meets, he looks into their eyes and sort of gets, oh, there you are, hi, you know. <laughs> and, and then he goes on to the next person, oh, there you are, hi. And, and it's quite wonderful to be in the presence of someone who practices compassion like that. And we can do that. There's no reason why you can't do it or I can't do that as part of our practice as part of our refuge in our inner Buddha nature. So then there's refuge in the Dharma. And refuge in the Dharma, I always think of as refuge in that which is true. That which is true. Last week, I was on my way up to Spirit Rock Maybe it's even been almost two weeks now. During the time of the Senate hearings and the House hearings on the resolution about Iraq, and I was listening to the different senators 
speak and some of them I turned the radio off partway through what they were saying and then I'd turn it back on because I wanted to hear who was next. And some of them I found to be enormously touching and I was driving along and weeping and, and just feeling so moved by what they were saying. And, and again, considering what is it that we teach at this time? What do we teach? So when I got to this meeting, Jack Cornfield was there. And so I'm always happy to pick his brains a little bit and see what he's doing. So I said, well, what are you teaching? What's, what's up for you right now as you are dealing with this troubled world? And he said, well, he said, I'm remembering a lot that Ajahn Chah used to say, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? We don't know. We don't know. That's actually what's true. We don't know. Every person here has at least one horrific story of what could happen in the next months. Is that true? Is there anyone who doesn't have at least one? You know, we've all got at least one, maybe more than one. And um, and sometimes I've run into people, I was talking with someone about this last week, and she said, you know, I'm so glad to hear you say that. She said, I've run into people who say, well, we're being punished. You know, we've done this and this and this, and now this is happening to us. And she said, I also ran into somebody who said, well, it's our astrological situation. It's because this is some planet is somewhere or some conjunction of something. And so there are people who are holding on to different stories about why it is the way it is and what's going to happen. But actually, my sense is that Jack's right. We don't know. Ajahn Chah was right. We don't know. And it's very helpful Sometimes that's a real refuge not to know. The horror stories are not very fun in the mind, you know, and they can be very troubling um, for the heart. And also that day, as I listened to some of those men and women speak, I was pondering that other place of truth where people speak what is true for them, regardless of the consequences. And some of those people knew that if they spoke what was true and if they went against the popular opinion, that they were going to have great difficulty being reelected. And they did it anyway. And you could hear that in what they were saying. Some of you, I see some heads nodding, so I know you were probably listening and feeling some of the same things too. And that just the enormous courage it takes to do that. And... You know, we aren't, none of us here, I don't think, is a senator or a representative, but there come those moments in our own lives when we stand with what we know to be the truest thing that we can find in that moment, and we stand with it regardless of the consequence. And that is also a place of refuge. The last thing that I want to think about in terms of truth, of the Dharma, Some of you may remember that um, poem by Thich Nhat Hanh um, called Call Me By My True Names. You know that one? And if I can find where I put my glasses, which is one of those old age things that happens. Ah. 
The one where he says, you know, I'm the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond and I am the grass snake who approaching in silence feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones. My legs as thin as bamboo sticks and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving, and so on. We should probably all make it a practice to say, and I am George W. Bush, (laughs) and I am Saddam Hussein, and I am the people of Iraq and of Palestine. Exploring that level of truth, that place where we are all of these energies, every one of us holds a place in our being that can resonate with each player in this drama that knows kind of how it is to be in those shoes. When we know that in ourselves, when I know where it is in me that I have that kind of desire for power or ruthlessness or whatever it is that I'm not liking in the other. When I touch it in myself, then sometimes I know more about where this other person is coming from and how it is that is best to respond to them, how I can respond to them with some wisdom and some compassion instead of out of a place of reactivity. Any place, any place where we create us and them creates wars. That's just how it is in the world. It's true in your relationships. It's true in your offices and your workplace. And it's true in the world. The minute there is a division that is clearly us and them, you will have some kind of conflict. And there won't be peace. Some of you may remember that wonderful teacher, Pogo, who said, I have met the enemy and they are us, you know, in one of his comic strips. And so the enemy is us. And in in Aikido, in Aikido, the understanding is, some of you are probably Aikido practitioners, that as you stand there and you're ready to meet the opponent, that the idea is that one gets very big, And that one's being encompasses the whole system, yourself and the opponent. And that as the energy comes toward you, then the art of Aikido is that you move with the energy and the whole system moves into a safe place. It's not you keep you safe and somehow they keep safe, but we keep safe. And that's how um, a system can exist without war. One could imagine what it might be. One can only imagine maybe what it might be if such such a way of being were what we were doing internationally these days. So the last of the refuges is the refuge in the Sangha. And traditionally, The Sangha is the community of awakened beings, fully awakened beings, of arahants. 
And certainly one could see these days how much we need a community of awakened beings. Um, But of course, what's also true is we now consider, and we use the word sangha to talk about a community such as this, a community of maybe partially awakened beings, you know, or beings on their way to awakening. And we need this. You know, if you look around this room, you could, you could take a moment. Some of you are sitting here with your eyes closed listening quite nicely. That's, that's great, but open them for a minute. And just look around and see each other. You know, we need people who are trying to wake up, and we need to know that we have other friends around us who are doing this practice of trying to wake up a bit. Several years ago, Andrew Harvey wrote a book called The Way of Passion, which is a book about Rumi. And in it, he talks about the whole notion that maybe the earth isn't going to make it as a planet. You know, we don't know. Some people think it is and some people think it isn't. And he said, you know, what's really true is, for one, we don't know. And that in a sense, as practitioners, it doesn't matter too much. If the world is going to survive, if we are going to find a place of peace, the world needs really good healers and nurses. If there is going to be terrible conflict, if the world is not going to make it, the world needs really good healers and nurses. It does. And so that's What we do in such communities as this is we try to create a space where we can become really good healers and nurses. Our Zen friends at the beginning of sittings say the bodhisattva vow, you know, beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. I love that vow. It is so insane. (laughs) How can you possibly make a vow? How can I sit there in any degree of seriousness and say, beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. It's such a big undertaking. It's lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes. But, you know, why not? And And so we do it as best we can. We try to include more and more and more beings in the Sangha of awakening because the world so desperately needs to be waked up. There was a little bit in the new Inquiring Mind that just came out. It was actually the caption for a cartoon sort of a cartoon. It said, when you consider the whole world to be your family, that is the end of war. When you treat the earth as your bed and the heavens as your pillow, the world will be safe. When you treat the whole world as your family, when you treat the earth as your bed and the sky as your pillow, you know, that's all the awakening that's really needed. Isn't that interesting? This doesn't seem like so very much, actually, to take in that all beings are our family. It's not some esoteric kind of enlightenment 
which might be very helpful, but it might be simpler than that. You know, it might just be that if we could just wake up to the familyness of the whole thing and to the fact that our connectedness to the planet is as simple as our bed and our pillow, just that. We all have beds, and probably most of us have pillows. We know how to do that. And we all have families. Sometimes we haven't done that one so well. But we're learning, and probably most of you know a bit more about how to do family than you you used to. That's all the awakening. I want to read to you as part of the end. It's a poem by William Stafford. And it's a poem about community and the importance of awakening and the importance of trying to see clearly where it is that we're going. It's called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world And following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, But if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel and maybe the root of all cruelty to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear, the darkness around is deep. Hmm. And from the Samyutta Nikaya, It is in this way we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. I think as practitioners, 
if we can deeply take refuge in the Buddha and in the Dharma and in the Sangha. It has the potential to be of great benefit to ourselves and to others in a time of great darkness. So I think that's enough, maybe. Why don't we breathe for a minute and then I'll take questions or comments. So just don't get into your fancy meditation positions. It's too much time. Just breathe where you are. It's good practice. So I'm happy to, if anyone has a question or a comment, I think this is a time when we can also teach each other a great deal. So I would be happy if there were some. No one? Would you say something about uh, this coming September 26th, which is a time that people on both coasts are having peace movements and October 26th I thought oh dear (laughs) what's happening next September (laughs) well I you spoke very directly to things I needed to Mm. have felt you expressed it so well but I felt that what I hear and what it would be in the past years I've been in, I thought it's more like I want to I want to light a candle somewhere, some kind of mm-hmm. vigil. And I wonder, in in this tradition or in the in the sangha ideas, would you say something about what we can do? Hmm. That's a good question. Did you hear the question? She wanted to know about what can we do and. I was reflecting on the the peace marches that are going to be happening on both coasts um, next Saturday on the 26th. And some of you may well be going. I don't know. I would imagine a number of people. I know a number of people from Santa Cruz are. Some of us can't go. I'm, you know, some of us are teaching and doing those kinds of things. I actually think it's very individual, you know, what, what I think is important is that we do something and that we have some connectedness to other people as we do it. Now, that might mean sharing with, a, you know, there might be a network of people who say prayers and light candles rather than going to peace marches. But um, I think what seems helpful, if, if you think of the Buddha Dharma Sangha, you know, it, it kind of covers the territory. There's a place for individual action and opening up to what is true and to waking up and there's a place for connectedness to the community. I'm a real believer in the sense that people find their own way and that not everything is the right. Some people are more introverted or extroverted, that kind of thing. So people will find their own right way to act and to respond to this, to the world. I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah. Please. Um, I just wanted to share a story about 
know, loving George Bush. I had this really great conversation with a Sufi woman from Afghanistan. Um, I guess it was last week. And she was, we were talking about the shadow side and the projection and how you could change the words from Saddam and put them in George Bush's mouth. And stuff. <laughs> you know, how we could all relate to that. Uh-huh. And the importance of not joining the shadow side by hating back. And, you know, she was saying in the Sufi tradition, um, you know, you, you, you hold that person in the light mm-hmm. because the shadow dissipates with the light. And, you know, and I just saw the correlations between Christian mm-hmm. teachings, mm-hmm. Buddhist teachings, etc. And so it was a really powerful, you know, it was a, a neat way to look at that again of just changing the vibrational quality mm-hmm. of what's going on and holding those people in the light. Mm-hmm. 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 Thank you. I just relates to what I was trying to ask, but I've been doing my best to say that for the Bush administration and people uh, you know, who may be thinking of some more. And I wish that you could help me on that. Mm. I, I devised my own way of saying it, but I just wonder what, uh-huh. what is it could be. Well, you know, with metta practice, it's so important to remember that metta is a training and that the feeling of kindness or open-heartedness or whatever may not be there. So it's a seed-planting practice, you know. So like when you put lettuce seeds in, you don't have any lettuces. You've just got these little... Specs you can hardly see, right? The seeds may not be in me or in the living metaphor. It may not be either place. I mean, the seed is there, but the, the, the manifestation of the loving kindness is not. I, I choose to believe that somewhere there's probably some good seeds in some of these people that we don't like so much. So, but all we can, all we can work with is ourselves. That's all we have. This, so you have to do metta in a sense, not, it's not about changing George Bush or Saddam Hussein or whoever it is that is high on your list of difficult people. It's about, can I open my own heart so that my own heart is open and compassionate and kind and that I am creating that kind of karma in the world? That's the only karma you have any control over is right here, right now, in this moment. And, and so my recommendation, one of, the, one of the images that's been helpful to me in these practices is that actually comes from the Tibetan tradition of developing compassion, which is that the practice is likened to digging drainage ditches. Now, if you think where Tibet is, high up there in the Himalayas where it's very cold a lot of the year and it's very rocky and it's not noted for its soft and beautiful soil, then the drainage ditches in the mind are kind of like that. You know, it's frozen and it's rocky and it's hard. And so you kind of chip away at it slowly. But if you keep chipping away at it, the kindness begins to flow through those. But it may take... A long time. I suppose it might, if you're a believer in many lifetimes, it could take many lifetimes. But even a long time in one lifetime. And so that's not your job, is to, is to, to worry about, am I there yet? Your job is just to keep doing the training, 
even though it's hard, even though you go, I hate him. How could he have done it? May, may he be peaceful. May he be happy. You know, and you go back and forth with whatever your, you know, the feeling that comes. But that's, you see, the other thing about metta is it's a purification. So if you have some anger, hatred, dislike, all of those things in there around any person and you're doing loving kindness for them, it will show itself. It has to. And that's, so in a way, your response is good. Okay, I'm seeing it. I see how much hatred I have. I don't mean to be Pollyanna-ish about it. It's really hard to see all the hatred that we have. But um, it does come. So I encourage you to keep on doing it, even when you hate it. Yeah. And probably it would be helpful to find a few other people who are also doing it and who are also hating it. And, <laughs> and that might be all of us. I don't know. You know, it's hard, I think. Yeah. Please. Mary. Um, when you're talking, uh, using this phrase of, of Ajahn Chah about who knows, um, I think one of the areas that I find that I, I often can't discriminate between truly not knowing and slipping into ignorance and delusion. Mm. You know, it's kind of like, well, who knows what's happened, happened in Afghanistan? You know, mm. who knows what happened to those, you know, uh, warehouses of food that were, you know, it's, there's, it does seem like there are times for knowing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, Absolutely. And maybe Absolutely. you can give us some words on, yeah, that's a on good point. using that phrase skillfully. I think mostly who knows is helpful for the future. You know, that, that the, all we have is this mysterious place that is called the present moment. It is helpful to know the past, what what has happened, what happened in Afghanistan, what is happening in Afghanistan. Um, I I have to say that every time Afghanistan comes up, I want to lean over and tell a few stories because I lived there for a while and I know people who are there. So there's a place that wants to spin over into Afghanistan. We can do that another time maybe. There's a very good website under uh, um, PARSA, P-A-R-S-A, for those of you who might want to know a little more. I'll just say that much. So, so it's helpful to get all of the information that you can, of course. And it's not helpful in that place where the mind takes different pieces of information and creates a story about how it will be. You know. So I think it's always a balancing kind of thing. I mean, this, this is not called the middle way for nothing, you know. And so you, you find out what you can know, and then you acknowledge what you don't know. But it's so easy to think we know. And I think most of us err more on that side, you know, where we think we have the whole story or we finally have heard the story. It's usually, in, in me anyway, it's the story I kind of want to believe, you know. And then someone comes along with a story that I really don't want to believe. And so how do you sort out those two things? And there's so much right now. I think it takes quite a lot of 
thoughtfulness and considering and trying to see what is true and acknowledging. I mean, there isn't, I probably isn't a person in this room who likes to say that they don't know. You know, it's not very fashionable. So it's, I think it's helpful for most of us to acknowledge that once a day anyway. <laughs> so. Well, maybe that's enough for now. Um, and what I like to do is end with a, lo- a little bit of loving-kindness practice. I don't know what your um, tradition is, but since I'm leading the group, I guess I get to say, huh? So let's just, very, let's just do a really brief loving-kindness. Sit very comfortably so as you are is just fine. Since we're all working hard at this practice that sometimes we hate to do, we might as well do it together at least once. So, <sighs> so breathe deeply and bring your awareness back into your body and into your heart. And just notice how your heart is tonight anxious or sad or happy or relaxed. And then let your awareness extend to your whole being. And in any way that is helpful to you, direct some goodwill into your own being. It might be a simple phrase. It might be a visualization. It might be the feeling of goodwill. Some simple way of directing goodwill and kindness to ourselves. May I be peaceful. May I have ease of being. And then let your awareness reach out around you to the person to your right and to your left and in front of you and behind you, gradually rippling out, extending out to include the whole room, all of these people who have come here tonight so that we could support each other's practice. And as you extend your awareness, also extend your goodwill including all of these people. May we all be peaceful. May we all have ease of being. Then let your goodwill reach out into the night, perhaps first towards people whom you know and love, your mentors and guides and family and friends. perhaps some people who are particularly in your awareness right now because they are ill or suffering. And then let our goodwill go out into the night, wrapping around the whole world, including all of the people, perhaps most particularly tonight people who are in places of power and people who suffer as a consequence of the misuse of that power. That pretty much covers everybody, I guess. 
And then let our goodwill extend to all of the other beings who share the planet with us, beings of the earth and the air and the water, to beings in every direction and every realm, beings who are known to us and those who are not. And then we gather up all of the merit of our practice this evening, all of the goodness. We gather this up and we give it away to all of these beings, that all beings everywhere may be happy, may be peaceful, and that all beings everywhere may be free. So thank you very much for your presence and your practice. I enjoyed being with you in your new home and look forward to seeing you again soon.